everybody, welcome to my podcast, Changing the Course. I am Atara, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com. And my podcast mission is to bring interesting, newsworthy, and current topics to the forefront with dynamic guests who help us to change the way we see things and open our world to new ideas. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Rabbi Mark Schneier to my show. Rabbi Mark is an author, a pioneer, and a trailblazer. As founding rabbi of the Hampton Synagogue, he has built a community that crosses political, social, and demographic lines in a way few religious institutions have been able to do. The Hampton Synagogue boasts one of the largest philanthropic memberships in the country, hosts international and national politicians and celebrities, and has become a place not just of worship, but of community and a vehicle of change. As a man of great vision, Rabbi Mark founded the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding, which serves as a uniting force for all religions and races. Through his work in the Middle East and beyond, Rabbi Schneier has pioneered dynamic programming and discussion, reminding us all that what unites us must be stronger than anything that divides us. Rabbi Mark, I am so happy to have you here today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's such a pleasure to be with you at Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to say congratulations. I know that you have a new baby, which is always such a wonderful blessing. So how is that going? On your podcast, it's breaking news. Oh, no, thank God. Uh, we were blessed, Simi and I, with a beautiful baby boy three and a half months ago. And I'm having the time of my life. That's great, right? I know you also have like, is your older son like 20 years old or something like that? Brendan's 21. He's 21. So it's a real juxtaposition, right? Uh, He's a senior at the University of Miami. Wow. So it's nice having a very like older child, even past a teenager in your home, right? Yeah. And a new baby. And it also keeps me young. (laughs) Definitely does. Well, congratulations again. So I want to like jump right in here. I know that you're a man and everything I said in the intro is really true of who you are. You're a trailblazer. You're a visionary. So I want to talk a little bit about, first of all, let's just discuss, you know, briefly what's going on in the, in the world, you know, with, I know you are on every media outlet that can possibly be talking about the United Arab Emirates and what's going on there. Tell me a little bit about that and, and what's going on and your role in that as you see it. Well, 17 years ago, the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding, we pioneered the field of Muslim-Jewish relations globally. And we embarked on a journey to find the path to narrow the gap, the divide, the chasm between 1.6 billion Muslims and 16 million Jews. Uh, Twelve years ago, the late king of Saudi Arabia, His Majesty King Abdullah, under his patronage, invited me to come to the Gulf, not only to advance my work in building Muslim-Jewish relations, But I also saw it as an opportunity to begin cultivating Gulf-Israel relations. Mm -hmm. So my travels have taken me across the Gulf from Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, Oman. I enjoy some very unique and warm relationships with all the Gulf leaders, um, with a diverse group of Muslim uh, faith leaders. And it's been a remarkable, remarkable journey. You know, when I first entered the fray 12 years ago, what happened this past week um, or last week in terms of the uh, UAE 
uh, Israel Accord uh, is not only you know an historic development, but it has touched me in a very personal and in a very real way. You know, I've always been the uh, the interfaith channel uh, right. to these uh, different leaders, and truth be told, that the interfaith platform played such a preeminent, prominent role in terms of bringing the Gulf states and Israel to this point, you're dealing particularly in the Gulf with a deeply, deeply religious society. And I have been um, successful in educating uh, my uh, esteemed and distinguished friends in the Gulf who want to engage in an authentic dialogue between Muslims and Jews, you must recognize Israel as being a part of Judaism. It's about religion, it's not about politics. I think that's interesting. an interesting point that you make. I think also what's interesting about what's happening in the world currently with the UAE, with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and so many things, is that there's, there's an underbelly of, of prejudice, right, that's been going on for, for many years. And I think that we're getting to a place where, where it's come to the surface. You know, I think maybe had, had we thought, asked five years ago, you know, how is um, race in America, you know, the racial divide? I think we were thinking we were at a better place. But suddenly it seemed as though that turned and the underbelly became the forefront of what's really going on here. Um, and I think we see that with what, what really erupted with George Floyd and what happened there and the Black Lives Movement. And I think that you have been really in your foundation, right, doing an enormous amount of work there. So I'd like to just a little bit talk about how you started that, how that became important to you. And, we, and we'll, we'll also discuss how you see that, you know, continuing in the future. But let's start with how that began for you. Well, the foundation for ethnic understanding I established 31 years ago in 1989. And the sole objective of the foundation was to embark on a mission to restore the historic Black Jewish Alliance uh, in our country. If you carefully examine the civil rights struggle of the 1950s and the 1960s, there was no segment of American society that provided as much and as consistent support to Dr. King and to the black community as did the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, after Dr. King's assassination, uh, that alliance uh, spiraled downward. Uh, probably the lowest point uh, in the history of black Jewish relations uh, in the nation were the uh, Crown Heights riots in 1991. And uh, I had a particular interest. You know, at the time, I was uh, working with my father. Uh, I was his associate at uh, Parkey Synagogue. Mm-hmm. And I come from a family tradition where you not only make a congregational contribution or a spiritual contribution, but you also have to make a social action slash political contribution. Mm-hmm. And um, truth be told, it was in 1988, uh, then-Mayor Ed Koch, um, who I was very, very, very close to, very dear friend of the families, mm-hmm. invited me to uh, City Hall. It was Martin Luther King commemoration. And uh, little did I know about the uh, black community nor the history of the black Jewish lines. And uh, he asked me to speak, um, and at this commemoration, I heard the um, uh, 
Boys Choir of Harlem. Okay. Sing uh, both We Shall Overcome and Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is the banner of the um, civil rights movement. And I literally, Atara, it's like I had an epiphany. Wow. You had a light bulb moment. I'm a very spiritual person. I yes. had an epiphany. It's like God opened my eyes. He opened my oh, heart. Wow. And, I, and I began to uh, delve into Dr. King, Black Jewish Relations. Remember my first book? Um, is the definitive text in Black Jewish Relations, Shared Dreams, uh, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the American Jewish Community, which I wrote with his son, Martin Luther King III. Um, and it's the civil rights struggle, particularly Dr. King's role, was only what the Jewish community, how we were of supreme support and solidarity uh, you know, to the black community, but also with the head of civil rights uh, movement, how he championed the civil rights of Jews as well in terms of his total advocacy um, and support of the state of Israel, his involvement in the plight of Soviet jury, his total disdain and zero tolerance for anti-Semitism. So it was really a relationship of mutual cooperation. It was a quid pro quo, it was a two-way street. And uh, I sat on this path and uh, I know that when history is written, you know, they will credit the foundation for being the organization, the movement, uh, for restoring, you know, that alliance, even though it needs uh, some uh, significant help today. But that was our um, exclusive focus, you know, from 1989 right. till probably around 2004, uh, to, to about... 2004 and 2005, and how the, the United States Congress uh, honored us as being the right. national address for Black Jewish right. relations. So I'm very, very up on uh, you know not only Black Jewish relations. What's happening now? I recently, as you know, did a five-part series with the heads of every major civil rights organization. From the head of the NAACP, um, my friend Derek Johnson, to the head of the National Urban League, uh, Mark Morial, to the head of the National Action Network, Reverend Al Sharpton, to the head of Rainbow Push, Reverend Je uh, Jesse Jackson, and the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Reverend Charles Steele. And it was a frank discussion on what role can the Jewish community play in supporting um, this uh, latest uh, movement and this drive to uh, correct the ills of systemic uh, racial bias and injustice uh, in our country. Um, and uh, I've most recently, you know, got involved. You know, I haven't spoken about this mm -hmm. freely or publicly. I'll just give you a little hint. In fact, it's probably the first time I'm ever discussing it mm -hmm. off of my pulpit. But, you know, you take someone like Nick Cannon, um, you know, really, you know, made some very, very repugnant and divisive uh, anti-Semitic uh, comments uh, last month. And, you know, Nick Cannon is a very uh, significant and very, uh, you know, extraordinary figure um, in uh, black culture, in R&B music, in hip hop, right. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And he, he and I are in conversation on a uh, daily basis in terms of some very uh, exciting plans that we have 
uh, you know, in terms of some very, some, some very substantive mm-hmm. initiatives, you know, we plan on putting forth, which I will discuss, you know, when they're in place. But uh, it's like uh, black Jewish relations. I thought I had kind of put that aside and pivoted right. to Muslim Jewish relations. But it seems like in my life, everything's a horse race. So now the uh, black Jewish relations horse is, is creeping up. It's uh, coming near, back. Near, near, near the Muslim Jewish relations horse. But listen, you know, I played a very important role back then, and uh, I've been drafted. To, yes. uh, to play that role again. And uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There. There, there really is. And, you know, I think it's important to remember, and you touched on this a bit, you know, no one, no one minority group, no one people, um, no one community has a monopoly on pain and suffering, right? So how do we show um, minority groups that they have to be sensitive to other groups as well. And it's not just, um, you know, I don't even want to name groups because it's everybody has a subgroup in their group even. And, you know, I'm all about children and empowering children. And I think for me, it always feels like it has to start in the education of children. I'm wondering if you agree with that. It needs to start with the education of children and also needs to start with with the education of every generation. Uh, you know, let's take the African American community, or now, now we refer to them as the black community today. Um, you're dealing with a generation that has absolutely no historical reference to the role that the Jewish community played uh, in the civil rights struggle, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing, you know, for me to you know be dialoguing with you know Reverend Jackson or Reverend Sharpton and, and the like. Uh, but it's really the Nick Cannons and the Ice Cubes and many of these celebrity right. entertainers, they have the greatest influence. They have the greatest impact. And why we, we so need true. to bring them into this discussion and why we need very much um, to educate and to sensitize them and to, for them to expand their horizons and enlarge their interests when it comes to black Jewish relations. So there's no question that it's a generational thing, uh, very important to focus on the youth. And when it comes to the fact that, you know, there's total democracy in our suffering, I, I often refer to uh, different faith communities and, and, and even ethnicities as having a common faith and a common fate, and how our single destiny must strengthen our bonds of concern, compassion, caring for each other. I I think that's so well said. I think that actually that is the point, is that we all have to come together as a people, right? It's not really just as a religion or a group of people, but it's really as one people. And I think that's true of of everything that's going on in the world today. There's there's so much divide in so many different ways, and it's, it's largely unnecessary. But it has to happen with education, with, as you say, um, a generation that we're educating so that everyone really knows and understands one another because isn't that really the core of, of all divide and prejudice is a lack of, of understanding one another wouldn't you say you know there's just a lot of misunderstanding and 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 the same case when it comes to black jewish yes. relations and you're right and black white relations right oh, and and black white of course i mean it's all about um Having the need to, uh, you know, educate people and to, uh, and also, 
um, the need to uh, to reach out to the other. I've always, at least, our work at the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding. You know, I, I've often said that the people who fight for their own rights are only as honorable as when they fight for the rights of all people. It's about That's fighting. So true. It's about fighting for the other. It's about understanding yes. the other. It's about being able to see uh, the humanity in the other. So there's so much work that needs to be done. I think that uh, with the election of um, President Barack Obama, everyone thought we had reached the promised land of a black-white reconciliation, but there's no question there was an underlying resentment in this country that America elected a black president. That was, uh, you know, Dr. King's dream. And, and, and I think the greatest contribution of Martin Luther King Jr. is the fact that he set the politically correct standard for this country. It doesn't mean that everyone's living up to that standard. Right. But at least with Dr. King and the civil rights struggle, we know what is right and what right. is wrong. Right. Uh, he put a face for that. I think exactly. that's well said. He put a face and he also built a foundation and a structure. Our goal collectively today is to make sure that everyone lives up uh, to that uh, standard. And, uh, you know, listen, I feel blessed. You know, my, my own son, Brendan, who we spoke mm-hmm. about before, you know, is a senior at the University of Miami. Brendan is colorblind. Yes. Uh, you know, the next generation. In terms of the uh, children, you know, if you look at the way they're educated, whether it's, yes. um, there is a much greater sensitivity and a much greater understanding when it comes to other faiths and other ethnicities. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Well said. I, I try to teach my children also, you know, there are good and bad people everywhere 100%. in every shape and color. And so we, we don't define people as good and bad based on the sect that they are part of or the community that they are in. We have to look into their heart and who they are. Correct. And I, th- I think that's what we need to teach children. And I think that you're, you're right. There is a, a large part of America, although unfortunately not enough of it, that is colorblind. And I think the goal is to get everybody there. And so I'd, I'd love to see your foundation and others like yours just being brought into the school system because I really firmly believe that we have to change the, the inner dialogue of our children and our generations in order to get to the places that we need to go and to, and to really heal the racial divide in this country in a real sustainable way. Well, you're somewhat prophetic because we actually took heed of your call, but we did this 20 years ago after the publication of the book Share Dreams. Uh-huh. We developed both a high school curriculum oh. and a college curriculum that was used by over 1 million students in this country. And uh, Martin Luther King III and I would travel the country, uh, oh, wow. different universities, different high schools, uh, just the visual of seeing Martin and I together uh, had great resonance at the time. And uh, we even uh, took our roadshow to South Africa. Um, wow. And I must tell you that, you know, we were the guests of the uh, President Becky at the time, South Africa. And both Martin and I came in with uh, some arrogance, thinking, you know, what could we bring to South Africa? We were so humbled 
Mm-hmm. By the way, that society had healed itself. It was more like, well, what can we bring back to the United States? <laughs> and, um, so, I mean, South Africa is, is a wonderful example of uh, how a country transformed itself, you know, from yeah. apartheid to a country of uh, genuine reconciliation um, and uh, understanding. And, and that's what we need in this country. I think that's true. And and we can each do it. You know, as parents, you're a parent, I'm a parent. As parents, we can do that in our own small way with our immediate family and bringing up our children to, you know, whether it's by reading, you know, certain books to them, exposing them to certain people, organizations, things of that nature. That's something that we can all do. You know, I interviewed recently um, are, are you familiar with the book A Long Walk to Water? It's about the Lost Boys of Sudan, Salva Dutt is the protagonist, right? A beautiful, wonderful book. And I interviewed Salva, and it was really one of the most meaningful podcasts because he really details, you know, the whole, um, his journey as a lost boy of Sudan and the whole civil war and and the trauma of it. And, you know, he came to America, fortunately for him. But then instead of just staying here and, you know, figuring out a way to get rich, he really decided he wanted to give back. And he went back to Sudan which was really a place of such trauma for him. But he, he's working on building wells there and giving water to people there because his whole belief, like what we're talking about, is we need to educate our youth. And without water in Africa, you can't go to school. So his whole idea of giving water to them and giving them wells is to educate them, thereby eliminating prejudice and civil war and all the strife that they're going through. So I think that's important. It's very important. I, I was very involved in the Save Darfur campaign. And uh, I remember in particular, in fact, that's where I then met Senator Barack Obama for the first time. We, we were both on the program at the Washington Mall together. But what was so heartening and, and so refreshing for me is that uh, as I overlooked you know, these sea of faces, it was a Jewish community initiative. There were about 75,000 members of the Jewish community that sent on Washington that day to show their solidarity with the black community, I would say at least three quarters were young people. And to see that this kind of um, response, you know, from you know, young people was, you know, particularly, particularly uh, heartening to, uh, for me. And it's been a very, very interesting journey. I, I think we should also, you know, I, I, but I think we should also recognize that the state of Israel, little Israel, is the only country in the history of the world, not the United States, not England, not France, the only country in the history of the world to have ever taken blacks out of Africa en masse for freedom. The only country. There are now 120,000 Ethiopian Jews living in Israel. But in the history of the world, only Israel, only the Jewish people, were the only ones to take out that many people out of bondage in Africa uh, for freedom. Uh, And that's a uh, historical record and, uh, and initiative that we should all be very proud of also. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think um, we can we can all look around. It's, it's interesting that you point this out. It's something that not that many people know about, right? 
Um, I think I knew about it. I certainly didn't know about it in quite the numbers that you said. And so we all learn new things. If we keep our eyes open, if we want to understand one another, if we want to really gain from each other, and if we want to see love and not hate, then there's something to learn from every person, every nation, every community. No question. And, By the way, and since I joined your podcast, you know, <laughs> with my official title as a rabbi, you know, one of my favorite teachings, you know, in the Bible, in uh -huh. Torah, that when God visited uh, the ten plagues upon the ancient Egyptians, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. And according to our biblical commentators, it was a very unusual form of darkness. It was not a darkness that affected the eyes. It was a darkness that affected the heart. That physically, they were able to see each other, but they did not care for right. uh, the other. They did not feel for the other. And that, Atara, is the most terrible plague of all. And that's really our mission in life, is to keep aglow the light of understanding and caring that truly enables us to see one another. Because when you can see uh, uh, the light in the other, um, you know, that's how we preserve humanity within ourselves. That's beautifully said. I, I, I love that. I'm going to repeat that in your name because I think it's, it's really beautiful. And, you know, that segues, segues me a little bit into, I wanted to talk about, you know, we're in this horrible pandemic right now. It's something we, we've not ever seen in the last hundred years. Um, and I think that the black community we know has been disproportionately affected, right? So what are we doing? What, are you, what is your foundation, if anything, or would you have any ideas of, of what we can do about this? Well, the, the foundation has very much um, brought this issue uh, to the forefront, uh, particularly uh, sharing this data um, you know, with the Jewish community at large. Uh, you're spot on. There's been a disproportionate uh, number of uh, illness and deaths in uh, communities of color. Um, you know, the answer is, you know, so obvious, you know, because so many uh, people of color do not have, you know, health benefits, do not have the proper health care. Um, and that's... Uh, you know, and that's a wrong that, that, that we have to right, you know, in, in, in this country. You know, we, we need to uh, remedy the situation. And, and one of the um, byproducts of the pandemic, you know, I, I remember speaking with Al Sharpton about this. I said, you know, Reverend Al, uh, you know, there have been other senseless and brutal killings of, uh, of blacks, um, you know, by police. You know, why? Why, why did the killing of George Floyd? He, say, he said, listen, Mark, it's, it's very simple. You know, you're in the midst of a pandemic. People have nothing else to do. Uh, people are wanting to go out. People have all the time on their hands to watch the news. Suddenly, the 42 seconds of a policeman's uh, leg on, on, on someone's neck seems like uh, eternity. And it's interesting that, well, it's not interesting, but I doubt this movement could have galvanized and could have mobilized the way it has had there not been this pandemic uh, because it has gotten people to hyper-focus on systemic racism in our country because they have the time on their hands to focus. 
So it's, it's you know, we, we look at the pandemic and no one needs to get into all the um, negativity and, and, and all the, uh, uh, you know, terrible loss of, uh, of life, of jobs, of, you know, the economy and, and, and probably unprecedented in, in, in the history of the world. Nevertheless, you know, there have been some positive outcomes here and, and one of those positive outcomes that people now have the time on their hands to really mobilize when it comes to social action, when it comes to uh, creating a blazing sense of restlessness, of being that gold to conscience. Um, you know, I often speak about that the role of a spiritual leader is only to comfort those who are disturbed, but to disturb those who are comfortable. And I can tell you that many of these issues have disturbed people um, that have been very comfortable, too comfortable, that they need to also channel, you know, time, energy, and, and resources uh, for setting things right. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's also true. You know, I would, I would say that it's not just that people have more time to focus, although I'm sure that's a factor, but it's that when you're in a lot of pain, which the pandemic ha has brought so much pain to so many, and when you're suffering and you're in a lot of pain, any added pain seems so intolerable. It's like if you have an open wound and then you touch it. Yeah, just, just unbearable. Fine. And I think that's really what happened with the racial underbelly. It was there. It was always there. I, I wouldn't, I, I said, I think you can attest to the fact that it was there, got better, but then got worse in the last several years. And I think that the, the pandemic is, is a dark period that is forcing us to take a look at what else is going on in this world. It's so, you know, welcome any Right. Good news, and why I think that the UAE is really start peace accord and normalization of ties. You know why in Israel and and in the Emirates, you know, people are euphoric because right. there, there has been this you know genuine desire you know for hearing good news today. Right. All we hear and, and all we are, <laughs> right. uh, you know every day you know we are just under the pressure of you know all the bad news all the negativity right. all the uh, uh you know horrific reports and when you hear something good you know that's also magnified yes absolutely. And, and, you know exponentially so absolutely you know they say the deepest warmest sunshine comes after the storm and gloom right things so i want to get on to something a little bit lighter before we go i know um you were in some movies with sarah jessica parker i adore her she's like my curly girl role model i remember her from sex in the city <laughs> um, i know she's still around but i mean that's like my vision of her forever with her curly hair so tell me how did that ever happen like what tell us the backstory with that all right it's a cute story it's just one movie with sarah jessica parker what happened that we had a member of the Hampton synagogue who, uh, you know, her, uh, her early passing was a terrible loss, um, you know, not, not only to the uh, community, but to uh, greater society. That's Wendy Wasserstein, okay. the late uh, playwright, and, mm -hmm. uh, who was really in, in her own league. Yes. And um, what happened, she had... Um, directed the, um, she had written and directed the Broadway show called Sisters, Rose and Swipe. And in Sisters, Rose and Swipe, 
on the, the Broadway show, there was a scene that had some ritual content. It's Madeline Kahn lighting the Sabbath, the Shabbat candles. Okay. So uh, there was a whole debate on set that when she pronounces the name of God, should she say the actual name? So that's what happened. And if you look at Playbill of the celebrated show, Sisters Rosenzweig, you see Rabbi Mark Schneier, religious boxing to the show. So what happened about a year later, the, uh, the actual, you know, again, Wendy was the uh, writer, you know, but Dan Sullivan uh, was the director uh, of Sisters Rosenzweig. And about a year later, I get a call from Dan Sullivan that he is directing this movie called uh, Substance of Fire. It's a major motion picture. It's a Miramax production. And we're going to cast a rabbi. I said, come on, let's get the real thing. Okay. And starring Sarah Jessica Parker, Timothy Hutton, um, who else was Anthony Goldwyn. I mean, it was an A++++ cast. And I was to do three scenes. I was to do a funeral scene, a counseling scene, and a shiva scene. So, Atari, you know something about my personality. No one has ever accused me about being shy. So he sends me, you know, my lines, my script, and I call him up. I said, listen, I love to do it, but there are not enough lines here for me. He couldn't <laughs> believe that I, I had the chutzpah to actually say something like that. So sure enough, he wrote in more lines. Okay, great experience. We were on set. Ten days, Sarah Jessica told me all her songs. She learned in Hebrew school as a kid. <laughs> of course, I tried to get her to the Hampton Synagogue. Did not succeed. There's still hope, right? There, 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 there's always hope. But what happened is that a year later, when the film was being released, and we, there was a special preview you know, for... Um, all the uh, actors in the film. So um, Dan Sullivan gets up and he says, look, you know, we had some time constraints and we had a shore in the film about, uh, you know, and we had a shore in the film of it, but no one touched the rabbi's part. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. All right? All right? And, That's the and, best. <laughs> and I had to be a member of SAG and the Actors Guild is all to do. When Charlotte in Sex in the City converted to Judaism, and, oh, I and, didn't know that. And and they didn't call me to do the. Uh, oh, you were in the show. Yeah, <laughs> and, and 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 they didn't call me to do the the wedding ceremony. I didn't were, get over it for days. For days. You were just like, come on, you called the wrong guy. Exactly. <laughs> oh no, they, no, they they called some actor. Come on, you can have the real deal. Right, like, unacceptable. Coca Cola, the real deal. <laughs> right. But I mean, haven't you said, I think I've heard you say, like being a rabbi is much like being an actor. Is it, is it like that? Like you're performing. You're, you're perf authentically performing. You're performing. <laughs> but, you know, listen, you know, my great passion, my greatest passion is being a rabbi. You know, that's what I love to do. When I was ordained as a rabbi in 1983. And uh, how old were you at the time? 1980, probably 20. You were young. I was 24. 43 of us entered the rabbinate. Most people went to the pulpit today. I'm the only rabbi left on the pulpit. Trip. Still standing. <laughs> you really uh, love it. Me, well, it shows. It shows. Yeah. Because and I, I have the most incredible congregation. I love what I do to wake up every morning and to just love what you do. It's a priceless feeling between the congregation, between, you know, if, if, if you look at, you know, 
my legacy to date. I built a community, you know, from scratch, out of nothing with God's help. I built a global movement of Muslim-Jewish relations right. out of nothing with God's help. Um, I helped rebuild the whole national movement in terms of Black-Jewish relations. I've authored two books. You know, I've played the role of a, uh, you know, of mm -hmm. rabbi. Uh, by the way, I also produced a movie. That oh, yes. I remember. And it last year. Um, we came in first at the uh, South Southwest Film Festival wow. in Austin, Texas. It's called the movie Jin. It's the first major feature film um, that uh, addresses um, uh, Islamophobia uh, in our country. So, uh, no, I, I've had an amazing, amazing, amazing life. And... Uh, and there's still more you're still there's still so much more for you to do that you will be doing i i would really love to see i would love to see um you know the foundations i know you said you created a curriculum for high school i'd love to even see it for younger kids because i think there would be so much benefit for that in the schools especially now like i think the schools are the landscape of how kids go to school for at least the next little while will be different and I think there's probably a place for broadening um, their understanding of things, maybe in a different way than they're used to learning just in the classroom. But I, I'm sure there's a place for your work because it's okay. so important. Uh, look, Antara, you know, Random House is my publisher. They've asked me mm -hmm. to write a third book. And uh, I can either go in that direction or I can write a book about uh, making peace in the Middle East. But, uh, yeah, there, there is no question there is a need for that kind of... Uh, text yeah and there really uh, is message to be written. there is no well it's been such a pleasure speaking with you you know i know you personally for many years i i really we would love to see you thank you for coming on